If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Anna, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 160 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Great to have you back for another hilarious classic conversation. Today, I am joined by international comedian Tamar Katan. You're going to love this conversation. Tamara is fascinating. We talk about traveling the world and doing comedy in so many different countries and translating the jokes to make sure they work in different areas of the world. We talk about when he went to Afghanistan to perform for the U.S. troops. All that and more coming up in just a few seconds. In these few seconds, I just want to remind everyone of the awesome episodes waiting for you in our back catalog, specifically last week's episode with Cato Kalin. That's right, Cato Kalin from the O.J. Simpson murder trial. The world's most famous house guest hung out with me on Classic Conversations. Check that out. Check out the bonus episodes from our Crossing the Streams show. So much for you to listen to. All classic. I promise, because that's my guarantee. All right. Well, without further ado, let's move on to today's interview with Tamara Katan, winner of the World Series of Comedy, winner of Comedy Knockout on True TV, met and married his wife during the pandemic all in one day. It's a fascinating story. Can't wait for you to hear it. And everybody, here it is. Enjoy. All right, everyone. Can't wait to introduce you to my next guest, international headlining comedian, <laughs> Tom Arcatan. What's up? Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. That's such a lovely, uh, happy introduction. It's like a Mentos <laughs> commercial. I love it. I know. Well, you know, I try. <laughs> you got to set the tone right away. You know, it's. It's <laughs> great. So it's it's great to have you. I appreciate you you hanging out with me. Thanks for having me. You have such an interesting journey. From Egypt to the United States, you're in the UK now, right? No, actually, I'm in Lisbon right now. Awesome. It's a very strange experience because, like, uh, doing the road in Europe is like instead of states, it's all different countries. So I feel like a James Bond a little bit. Like I'm going to Austria and then to London and then to Ireland and then to France and then back to Lisbon. It's wild. What's it like? How does the comedy translate from country to country or even areas of a country to another area of a country? Do you ever? Does that get in your head? Like they're not going to necessarily relate to a particular story or? You know, it's really funny. I've always just like broken it down to when I used to work in advertising. And this guy said to me one time, there's no such thing as mass communication. There's only one-on-one. If you're good at one-on-one, you can replicate that for mass, right? And I think it's the same thing. It's like, I can speak to foreign audiences just as easily as I can speak to a foreign person and make the same adjustments that I'd make when speaking to a foreign person. Like if I'm going to make a joke about basketball in LA, I first have to explain Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal. But the nice thing about being an American going to Europe as opposed to the reverse 
is like there's celebrities and regular people. And until I moved to Europe, I didn't realize there's also regular countries and celebrity countries. And we come from a celebrity country. So it's very easy for me to do my material and have the majority of audiences get it almost 100% of the time. The only difference that I've made an adjustment towards is I actually perform for European audiences as if the room I'm performing in is slightly bigger because of the language. Sometimes it's people are speaking uh, English as a second language or even a a third or fourth. So I I speak to a 200-person room as if it's a 2,000-person room and slow down a little bit. But that's actually been great for my comedy. And I've been finding... I've been finding my physicality the same way that I'm a little bit more physical if I'm speaking to a foreign person who doesn't know English 100%. Um, So that part's been fun. Like I I feel like my comedy is changing and evolving a little bit. That's so interesting. And then have you been back to the States to see how this new application works (laughs) back here? Not yet. But I mean, ever since I started, like I went to university in Sweden, even though I was from LA and New York, I've always spent a lot of time in Europe. So I did the Edinburgh Fringe like my second year during comedy, I spent four years in the UK. So this is my first time where I'm like living here properly. And I moved my mom here and she lives really close to us. So now Europe feels like home for the first time. It's been a fairly easy transition. And COVID here has totally created a shakeup with digital nomads and expats where so many companies now are saying, yeah, live wherever you want to live and you can work remotely. And what that's done is it's had a lot of people in Europe say, well, hey, I'm going to move to Hungary or I'm going to move to you know other parts of Eastern Europe that are really cheap, or places like Lisbon and outside Lisbon, where the cost of living is much lower. Everything else is fantastic. Like Lisbon's a super cosmopolitan city. And if you can live here, but make your money outside, it's a great quality of life. I love that's the one thing that I do love about this new culture that we're in, where I'm talking to a company and they're like five states away. And it's like, are you okay being fully remote? And I'm like, yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's great. It's funny. Yeah, I don't think I've driven 10 miles since March 2020. <laughs> Get out. Are you serious? There was, wow. a t- there was a time where it was like a friend of mine had to say, dude, you know you have to drive your car or the battery will <laughs> die. And when it dies like that kind of death, you got to get a new battery. So you're like, you have oh, wow. to drive your car. <laughs> wow. I'm like, okay. I'm like, I, this is great staying home. I'm saving thousands of dollars. <laughs> it's really weird. It's really shaken up the cultural map in Europe. Now there's all these communities and cities that never had a big expat population. And now there's a ton of English speaking people looking for entertainment and communal entertainment, like seeing live comedy or live sports instead of just watching comedy on YouTube or TV. Well, comedy live is a completely totally different, different right? experience. Than watching yeah, it's it a TV. very different thing. Yeah, yeah, it's when people say, oh, they've only seen it on TV. I'm like, I guess if you've adapted to that, but if you're like, well, yeah, being a comic and obviously, so both of us having seen so much, it's like, you know, the energy and it being there is just so different. hundred percent, man. When you watch someone on TV after watching them live, you're like, you're like, oh, this is nothing compared to. Oh man. It totally drives me crazy when people are like, I watch comedy on TV. That's like saying, hey, do you like going to the zoo? And you're like, oh, yeah, I love Wild Animal Planet. Like, it's <laughs> that's TV, man. You got to smell us in real life to, to smell. Like, we're wild. Like, the audiences to me are like domesticated animals, and we are still part wolf. And I, I think in order to, to sense that animalistic, primal dog without a collarness that comics have, you, you got to be there live. Oh, yeah. I mean, just the, the whole one-on-one, staring them right down. Yeah. Getting right into it. 
reacting when things go good or bad. Yeah. It's nothing like watching on TV. It's so... Totally. Yeah, it's like a real date or just uh, a Zoom date. It's like, like, it's, just, it's so different. I don't know if you've ever had a garden. It's like growing your own tomato versus getting one in a restaurant. <laughs> yes, I like that. Yeah, exactly. You're like, these so are both like- tomatoes? What? <laughs> <laughs> Technically, yes. <laughs> But so interesting thing, I when I was looking at like clips and stuff like that, the clips of you not in the U.S. say call you a American comedian. Yeah. But I know you were originally born in Egypt. So at some point you came here. I know it was young, way before you would have gotten into stand up. I got this goofy accent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was like eight years old when we came to the States. Well, a couple of (laughs) questions. Sure. You have a you are like a melting pot. Your family's like a melting pot in itself. Totally. Right? Your mom yeah. was Jewish. Your dad was Muslim. There's Yeah. Who is Christian in there? There's cuz there's in that. Well, my dad, my dad's family's from Alexandria, which is always a mashup between Greece and between Southern Europe and Africa. Alexandria is where Alexander the Great lived with Cleopatra, and it's where my very Egyptian grandfather married my very Greek red-haired green-eyed grandmother. So my dad's mom was Greek Orthodox or very Christian. My dad was Muslim. And then he met my mom who was Jewish. And then their family on paper converted to Coptic Orthodoxy so they could legally stay in Egypt and keep their businesses. Okay. So your mom had to give up being Jewish to stay yeah. in. On paper. On paper. Yeah. So yeah. I got to say the first thing that popped in my head when I found out you were Jewish, part Jewish. Do you consider yourself Jewish, right? It's like, because the mom is Jewish, you're Jewish in, in Judaism, but it's the opposite, yeah. right? In Muslim. In Islam, yeah. yeah. It's if your dad's Muslim. <laughs> I live in the loophole. For those who don't think politics goes back that far. <laughs> I'm sure, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that was crafted that way. So my first thing that popped in my head was, oh my God, I got to ask him. Ed, did, did, when you were younger, did you celebrate Passover in Egypt? <laughs> Because to me, <laughs> what was it? I think because in my head, could you imagine? Sudden, well, yeah, because all of a sudden so I'm like, and then Moses. Actually, it was right over there, right? You can just yeah. point, and I was just totally. like, <laughs> I was just like, I don't know why that was just the first thing. It'd be head. like watching a Godzilla movie in Tokyo. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> no, you know, we weren't really, we weren't really religious. You know, I think like, I mean, of course, on high holy days, um, we'd go to temple and stuff, and we had, you know, of course, friends, but we were more culturally than religiously Jewish. And, uh, and same on my dad's side. I really didn't do anything with Islam. The only person who really pushed me to be a religion was my grandmother, who baptized me Greek Orthodox. Got it. Uh, against everyone's will. No <laughs> one knew. I mean, I was like four. I didn't know what was going on. I just knew I was getting pizza. And, uh, and then she came home and said, oh, your, your kid's uh, Greek Orthodox now. My parents were like, what? But she was the matriarch of the family, so nobody questioned her. You were probably able to get into any college you want when it came to that part. You could just check every box. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. We got into a big, my dad and I got in a big argument because my dad always thought I didn't study enough. And then when I got accepted to almost every college I went to, he's like, you know, you can't mark African-American. You're not really African-American. I'm like, dad, I didn't mark African-American. <laughs> That's about the only one you're not, right? <laughs> exactly. But I am. I am technically oh, you are? African-American. Yeah, technically. I mean, Egypt's in Africa. But no, I didn't mark. I just marked other, like a, like a good uh, mutt. <laughs> oh, man. I This is audio only, but I do wish everyone could see your mustache. You have an amazing Oh, mustache. thank you so much. Yeah. You know what's funny? I never in my life 
thought I would grow a mustache because I thought like on an Arab face, it just looks ridiculous. I look like a dictator, you know, and I never thought my wife was like, you got to grow a mustache. She really liked mustaches. And man, it's, I mean, besides the kids yelling out, it's a Mario every time they see me. <laughs> besides that, I think I've, I'm kind of growing into it, you know, now that I'm middle-aged and I think I would kind of dig the mustache now. I, I really like it, but I'm still... I'm still getting used to it. Like, I don't know how I have to eat ice cream with a spoon now, like an English gentleman. Other, <laughs> my mustache gets these little dreadlocks and I look like a homeless person. My wife likes scruff. So I can't, I can't, she doesn't allow me to shave because she, I, I guess her in her own nice way, she just does not like me clean shave. <laughs> There's no good way to say it, but the way she says it is, I like, no, that. I like the scruff. Yeah. It's rough to get to the stage that you're at you would have had gone through some real prickly periods. But once you get past that, you have the magnificentness that is upon your face. To, <laughs> Thank you. That's very nice of you I'll to, to make, say. I'll have to make sure. I'm a, I have. I'm a bald guy. It's, 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 I've waited a long time for people to compliment me on my hair. And uh, <laughs> I, I've been bald for like 20 years. So it's, it's a new compliment I'm getting used to having. I like it. <laughs> Hey, we just need to take a quick break. I want to thank everyone for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations, and that's how we keep the lights on. All right, now we're back to my amazing conversation with Tamara Catan. Definitely, after the interview, go check out a picture of his mustache. You'll understand why I was fawning over it so much. Anyway, back to our talk. My wife won't let me go bald. I say that because I have a big bald spot, and so I take... Propecia to kind of freeze my hair in time, right? Yeah, I, I'm like, let me just, I'd rather just <laughs> go. I just, but then I worry. So you have a great bald head. And it's like, Thank I worry you. what I'm my lucky. head would look like, right? That's the, that's what you kind of, kind of risk. Yeah. I think a round head on an adult, uh, adult person means that it's an indication that their mom had OCD and was <laughs> constantly rolling the baby over to make sure he didn't have a flat spot on his head. Oh my God, that's so funny. Um, I had like the biggest head of hair like growing up. Like I didn't have a forehead in high school, right? It was just, <laughs> you know, I had like one of those mullets until like way past when you should, but before it was even called a mullet, you know what I mean? Like it was like, are, just you, just, are you just trying to hurt my feelings? No, now? no, no. What, what I'm saying, just... no, 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 I'm not trying to shame you. I, uh, <laughs> what I'm saying is like one day I was doing a, a show and I was videotaping the show, right? Uh, the stand up show. And there's nobody at this show. And it's like a fundraiser. And I make a joke. It was actually about cats. They were raising money for like stray cats. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. What do we save here today? A cat or something like that? Anyway, but I make, you know, like sometimes you make yourself laugh on stage, right? So yeah. I lean, I kind of leaned over because I was laughing at my own joke because I had to, I just needed to entertain myself to get through it. You know how it is. Yeah. And I'm watching it back on video. And I'm like, I'm bald. I've got a wow. huge bald spot. And my wife's like, we didn't know how to tell you. <laughs> oh, isn't that wild? Comedy's gnarly. Can't see it in a mirror, you know, because yeah. it's right. And uh, I was just like, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> I used to always say that being a comic gives you access to the best mirror in the world. It's not just like a video camera or pictures that people take of you, but also you can kind of tell what people will and will not tolerate from your look. You know what I mean? Like you can, there's certain things that other comics can say that I can't say because I know I have like tattoos and a big scar next to my eye and a gold uh, piece of gold on my tooth. You know, it's, it's like, there's a reason why a, a very petite black man like Kevin Hart can say things that Patrice O'Neill could never say. You know what I mean? So it really, it teaches you a lot. An audience really lets you know where you are in the world. 
Absolutely. It's funny you say that because the only mirror in the world that I could see the back of my head is at the Comedy Castle in Royal Oak, where it kind of wrapped around. So if I was watching it, I could see the back of my head. Oh, that's brutal. Which is not what you want. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, oh, God. (laughs) Anyway. That's funny. Oh, man. You know, for the interview, obviously, I have to stalk your life. And so I can... (laughs) Since this is our first meeting, I found an interesting series that you did on YouTube. Nice to marry you with your wife. Oh, yeah. Thanks. And so one, I'd love to hear about how you met her, but also how did you get her to actually agree to be in videos with you? I can barely get my (laughs) wife to listen to this podcast. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. It was uh, it it wasn't easy, especially because Swedish people are after they got through their Viking stage, they became quite shy. You know, like they're really violent, angry people. And then now they're very quiet, very shy, and they sell discount furniture. Yeah, she <laughs> she was not interested in being a part of the videos, but she's always been a self-help person. I think what I did is I uh, created a, a good compromise, like you're supposed to do in marriage. And the compromise was it wasn't just this series wasn't going to just be about jokes. It was the point of intersection between what I love, which is comedy, and what she loved, which was learning how to be a kinder human being. So for us, it was like the point of intersection was honesty. That's what I told her. These videos aren't about being funny. It's about us like being on camera and being very honest about what it's like to uh, meet someone and ask them to marry you the first day you met and then get married three weeks later or two weeks later, actually. That's incredible. How long have you been married? Almost two years. So we got married right in the middle of COVID. She was a Swedish woman living in Barcelona and I was in New York in the Lower East Side. I was not interested in dating at all, but you know, New York during quarantine in a tiny apartment in the Lower East Side, I was just going bananas. When I was in college, whenever I'd feel, you know, like I was suffocating a little bit from being overwhelmed by all the work, I would always virtually travel uh, with YouTube. And so I found out that on this dating app, Bumble, there's a feature called Passport where you could put yourself anywhere in the world. So I, I put myself in Barcelona because that's where I was supposed to be, but the pandemic happened. So I put myself in Barcelona and I said, I'm not interested in dating. And I made like a profile that was upside down. I go, I'm single because I'm, I'm defensive and I'm selfish and I'm a comic. And it's like being a single dad and my kid is a piece of shit. <laughs> People don't like my kid. My kid's name is comedy and he's, he's a brat, you know, and, he, and he's jealous and he's selfish. And, and she wrote back a response that was uh, in kind. Like she just admitted all of her flaws. And we started out very, very honest and would have these six hour conversations um, over FaceTime because really we didn't have anywhere else to go because of COVID. So we really got to know each other. And after about two and a half months or so, she said, you know, I already had COVID and recovered. And I go, me too. So she goes, well, when things start opening up, why don't you come and stay with me in Spain and we'll get to know each other because my roommates are staying in Germany. And so I have a free room for you in Barcelona. So I said, great. I already had COVID and I even had a piece of paper that said, I had COVID and recovered, which back then was like the golden ticket. And then I flew to Barcelona, lay over in London, get to Barcelona. And right when I get there, they said, where are you going? And I'm like, I'm going to meet my girlfriend. They're like, no, no, you can't. And I'm like, wait, here's all the, here's all my paperwork. Here's a QR code from your government. And they said, no, we changed the law yesterday. You can't come in. They took me to jail and made me spend the night in jail and then sent me home the very next day. Two weeks later, I got back on a plane and met her in Gibraltar which was technically Spanish soil, but owned by the, by the UK. And it was such a tiny country. Like you could walk the length of the whole country, but it was so tiny that it stayed green the whole time. No COVID deaths. And it was probably the last place on European soil that was allowing Americans in. I flew there 
we met and the day we met, I said, let's get married so that whatever happens with COVID, they can't keep us apart. And then we got married. Oh, well, it took us two weeks because our birth certificates weren't arriving because of COVID too. Like even FedEx couldn't send us our birth certificates. So we're stuck on this island for two weeks, meeting all these other people that are there getting married because it's kind of the, the Vegas of Europe. And uh, we were like in, in a wedding for two 82-year-olds from, from England. And they, they pulled us on the dance floor and they're like, these guys are getting married soon as soon as their birth certificates arrive. And then we'd be on the dance floor with all these old British people. It was, it was freaking great. And then uh, we got married and walked across the border to Spain, got in a car and drove to Barcelona. And, and we've been together ever since. That is incredible. That is really <laughs> cool. And so, and you got through the hardest part, which is probably like confined in a close environment for a long time. Yeah, definitely. And, the, and it's funny, we've been noticing like the cultural differences are real. Being, you know, a, a Muslim Jew from New York and LA and her being this sweet Swedish girl from the woods in Sweden. I mean, if a, if a, a garbage truck drives by, she jumps. You know what I mean? Like it was a very, and she'd always be like, why are you so loud? And why do you complain so much? And I'm like, I'm an Arab Jew. Like, what are you talking about? This is, I can't be quiet in New York because no one would hear me. Like, it's just a big, loud, noisy city. And so now we're, we finally found our groove, you know, but there was definitely some cultural differences to get over. So how did your families react to the quick marriage? Everyone cool? Well, it's funny because like I was uh, 49 when we got married. So my mom was just happy, you know, <laughs> and uh, and her mom, same thing, you know, because Anna was in her late 30s. We just hit it off and we had so many things in common. She's literally got a Mel Brooks tattoo on her arm. It says, it's great to be the king. And I was like, oh my God, like who's this beautiful redhead with a Mel Brooks tattoo on her arm? Like it, it's as if it was like that movie Weird Science where the kid made the girl on his computer. Like, that's what I felt like. Like, I, it was like I made her at an Ikea. It was ridiculous. I mean, she's absolutely a soulmate. And I am not someone who uses that phrase at all. That's great. And that's, yeah. that's an awesome quote, too. So, yeah, as, that is definitely a, a, a comedian magnet right there. I used to think, <laughs> like, in high school, like, I used to think, like, my perfect girl is someone that can quote one-to-one -one with me when Harry met Sally. Oh, that's great. Until I dated a girl that met that. And I was like, I was wrong. I, <laughs> there is more to life <laughs> than quoting a movie. So, uh, <laughs> but, oh, that's, that's so cool. So have you started to go back touring and stuff? How is she reacting to yeah, being married to a, a comedian? Is she yeah, tour with taken, you? It's taken some, definitely taken some getting used to because when we were in Barcelona, she would already lived in Barcelona for like eight years. So I was there and I just, I was the quintessential tourist. And everything I wanted to do, she's like, ah, that's touristy. Ah, that's not cool. You're not going to like that. So we started butting heads a little bit. And I'm like, look, you've been living here too long and you're finished with Barcelona. I'm like, why don't we look for another place? And we found Portugal. And part of the reason why we moved here is because you can get a golden visa if you buy property. And so we moved my mom here so she could be close to us. She's a 20 minute train right away. And now she has a golden visa, which means she has the same rights as a European citizen because she bought this house in Portugal. That's why we did that. But it also complicated things because being on the road when we lived in Barcelona, she still had her, her community there. She had her, her support group of friends. So when I was on the road, she could go out with a different friend every day. But when we moved to Portugal, we were brand new here and she didn't know that many people. At first it was it was really hard, but now we're, fi we're finding our groove. The nice thing is she works remotely. So if I'm in London for 10 days, for example, she could get a Thursday or a Friday off and then come and meet me. And 
So we're never away more than seven days uh, from each other. That's so cool. You know, it's, yeah. I started a podcast during COVID. You fell in love that's and great. got married. Everyone's got their thing. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I think that's really, I think it's really important. You know, it's like, you don't want to be a caterpillar that goes in a cocoon and comes out a caterpillar. You know what I mean? Like this has been a human cocoon that we've been in, in a way. And I think it's really important that when we're, when we're trapped in this cocoon like state that we do do something and, and find the silver lining in it. And I, I do think there is some silver lining to slowing down, stopping it. It's like somebody hit re, you know, hit the reset button on life a little bit. Yes, 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 yes. So cool. I, that's exciting. It really is. It's kind of cool. I mean, just to hear like <laughs> that, that kind of that love story. It's, it's really, really, and she does have red hair. That's real red. She hair. does. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. God, God can see her red hair. It's crazy. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I just realized by the way, like one of the reasons why she loves this mustache is because she loved Magnum PI. If I had that hat on, she'd lose her mind. Like you're wearing a Detroit Tigers hat. If I was wearing that hat with this mustache, I'd be the full Magnum PI transformation. <laughs> Do you remember that show Magnum PI? Of course, I'm from Detroit. It's you. Ha- yeah, you have okay. To, you have to. You're you're given it when you uh, when you're born. The I went. <laughs> I, I'll have to find this picture and send it to you. I I don't think I I had a fake mustache one year and I went <laughs> as Magnum PI. Get out, really? Well, if I had had your mustache, I think I could have said legit on Magnum PI. I think the version <laughs> I ended up with was seventy bow chicka wow. <laughs> Horn star, but you know, I mean, I tried. I try. I think that was the year my wife was pregnant, and she got a blonde wig, and she went as pregnant Barbie. And then I oh, was, that's great. Yeah, I and then that. I went, it was in the heyday of where we really. I can't remember the last time I went to a Halloween party, but we used to love love dressing up. But yeah, I went as Magnum PI once. Absolutely, this is the wrong that's hat. Yeah, you need the blue hat. This is a gray one. The blue but, one. Yeah, you're yeah, right. But that's uh, <laughs> so funny. I'm not afraid to say it now. That man had a great butt. (laughs) (laughs) I would have felt weird about saying that 10 years ago, but you know, we've progressed. We've progressed, yeah. (laughs) Great butt. What an ass. (laughs) I'm still impressed by it. (laughs) (sighs) Too funny, too funny. Sorry to interrupt this amazing conversation with Tamara Catan, especially right in the middle of our deep dive into Tom Selleck's amazing ass. But we got to take a quick break. And we're back with Tamar Catan. We're about to talk about his awesome podcast. Enjoy. I, oh, so you mentioned your mom a couple of times. You've got a pretty cool podcast. I don't, I don't know if you still do it or not. They tried to bury us. You do a podcast with your mom? Yeah, I was doing a podcast with my mom. We went on hold for a little bit, you know, because uh, for lots of reasons. I was going on the road a lot. I hadn't figured out a strategy for how to record episodes when I was on the road. So we kind of put it on pause. But now that she lives here, uh, I think there's a very good reason to to re-strategize and think about how to get her back on the air because I think it was great for her. And I, I think she had more fans than me. Like at the end of the, it was really funny. It was like, imagine Johnny Carson, but Ed McMahon getting more love. It was a little bit frustrating, if I'm honest. <laughs> I remember being in Boston one time, we did the Women in Comedy Festival because my mom was a woman, obviously. And so they let us into the festival and we did a live version of our podcast and it was sold out. And I remember thinking, wow, what a great festival. They do such a great job marketing. Turns out it wasn't their marketing. It was a bunch of people that drove, you know, one woman drove over an hour and a half. And then they asked me, oh, can, can I have a picture? And I'm like, of course. And then they handed me the camera and I was like, oh, this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've been doing this 10 years. And my mom is like, oh, get out of the way. I'm like, this is bullshit. <laughs> that is so funny. How, many, how big of an audience did you guys have? Oh, we were getting almost 10,000 downloads per episode. And it's still, we're still on like iTunes charts and stuff in different countries. That was the thing that's fascinating because every episode was an immigrant from a different country. And every episode was in three parts. It was, where did you come from and why did you come to America? And then the part two was, what's been the toughest part? And we always ended on a positive, what's been the best part of being in America? And it's, it was just a way to add the other side of the prism that was coming from the media, which everything about immigrants was so negative. And it was just like, hey, here's some nice, normal people that immigrated and what they sacrificed for the love of their children and what they were willing to do for the opportunity for to have more in life, which at the end of the day made me feel more proud of being American and more happy uh, to be an American. So yeah, I love it. And I think it's necessary. So I'm going to try to find a way to get it back. I'm going to let you explain it, but tell everyone what the phrase they tried to bury us means. When I read it, I was like, wow, that's powerful. Yeah. So when I was a kid, I lived in East LA and I used to get picked on quite a bit. And there was an old Mexican man that lived in our neighborhood and they always like kind of accepted me as like a Mexican practically. Like we were the Mexicans of Africa, Egyptians, you know, they had pyramids, we had pyramids, things like that. <laughs> you know, they really accepted me. And I, I've always loved Mexican people for that reason. Like they really made me feel welcome when a lot of other people didn't. And there was an old Mexican man who, who saw me on a day where I came home and I had two black eyes and he could tell what happened. So he said, without me even saying a word to him, he said, he said, you know what, you're just like one of us. And I want you to remember something. It's hard now. What's hard now will make you strong later. And I want Cesar Chavez once said, they tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. And he's on, that's you. Be strong and let this stuff is going to fuel you. It's going to make you stronger. And I'll, I never forgot that old man because it, it was such a macho thing to say, like a motivational poster thing to say, but it was his version of intimacy. Like he put his arm around me and, and gave me a hug. And I remember I almost cried because I just felt like nobody cared about me at that point. So I've never forgotten that moment. I, it's, I, I can still smell his cologne when I think about this big, tough Mexican man giving me a hug and letting me know it's going to be okay. That's great that you had someone like that. Yeah, I was lucky. So the transition then coming over as an eight-year-old Egyptian to the United States rough with the uh, the other kids? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It was. I think, I mean, this is even way before 9-11, but I told one of my friends that, you know, racism, if parents aren't careful, it leaks to the kids, right? And I remember I used to watch the news in the morning. And if they talked about gas prices going up on the news, I'd get beat up at school because the news would talk about gas prices going up. And then I could imagine their parents at home going, oh, those damn Arabs. And then the kids going, I know one of those. And then you know, ex expressing their parents' rage onto me. And so it was, uh, it was a very bizarre feeling to experience like this lack of justice, this injustice at such an early age. Like, I mean, I think it's all over my body now, you know, the, the tattoos, the, the reason why I fell in love with punk rock music. I mean, at a, at a very early age, I'd watch cops and robbers and I'd vote for the robbers. Pirate, I'd vote for the pirates. I'd vote for the Indians instead of the cowboys because I'm like, they think I'm a bad guy, but I'm really a good guy. So maybe it's the same for these other bad guys. It's formed a big part of my personality and, and probably formed still the reason why I, I do the type of comedy that I do is I'm still a, a big fan of using comedy like a Trojan horse. Like it looks like a gift, but on the inside, there's little soldiers that try to make you think different. 
That's a great approach. I, I'm so, I'm so, it's so, kids are such assholes, right? <laughs> they really are. They really, yeah. Kids are pieces of shit. They really are. <laughs> I'm so sorry you had to do that, but it. Oh, uh, thanks. I would say you turned out great, though. <laughs> oh, that's very nice of you to say. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I'm a work in, I'm a work in progress. It's so funny. Just tonight, I was walking with Anna. We're walking this really pretty street in Lisbon, and I have these moments of frustration, right? And, and I try to make a distinction. Like my wife goes, why are you so angry? And I go, I go, I'm not angry. I'm a, I'm a comedian. And we, we don't go on stage and talk about the things that we love. We talk about the things that frustrate us. And I go, Jerry Seinfeld always said, it's not about being angry. It's about being frustrated. And she goes, good. I don't have a problem with you being frustrated. <laughs> so as we're walking down the street, there was two people on one of those scooters, you know, like a bolt scooter or a mm -hmm. bird scooter. And it was a two, two people. It's supposed to be one person on the scooter. I sound like such an old Jewish man right now. It's supposed to be one person on the scooter. It's two people on a scooter and they're in the street and it's a bumpy street and there's a bus going by. So of course my rage starts bubbling and my frustration starts bubbling, but she's right next to me. And I don't want to disappoint my wife. So there's these two forces, right? There's my New York rage. And now my new married band want to make my wife happy, be a better person. So I catch myself mid rage, right? So as they're riding by, I'm like, look at these idiots riding two people on the scooter. They're going to get themselves killed. And then I stop and I go, but you know, we're all equal. <laughs> Everybody's just trying their best. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife just looks at me and she goes, nice try. Nice. <laughs> Man, those scooters, I was walking out of a building once and the, I think there's somebody alive right now because I have fast enough reflexes to have stopped the door. They were way too close to the door of a building. It's wow. not even the sidewalk. It was a glass door. So I'm just, the wow. things that go through your mind when you play out a different scenario that could have happened, you know? Yeah. I was just like, that guy doesn't know he was a second from being in the hospital. Easy. Whether 100%, going through that door or whatever it was, if I had thrown it open, I mean, it was just like scary. I have to tell my kids because they don't wear helmets either. Oh, I know. That's what my wife's number one thing is. She's like, wear a helmet. And I'm like, I'm not going to wear a helmet. <laughs> I have tattoos. I'm too cool. I can't wear a helmet. <laughs> and I think when you sign into the app, you agree to a helmet. So you've waived your rights if you yeah. smash your head open. It's like, That's yeah, exactly we do right, sound like yeah. two old Jews. Those kids today. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, too funny. What is Tantrum Jesus? Because it sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. It's actually a show that uh, one of my friends created. Uh, I've been a writer producer on the show for the last uh, year and a half or so. And basically the it's an animated series that's now very close to, I don't want to jinx it, but very, very close to being produced. And basically the premise is that we all know about Jesus's life when he was an adult, but no, nobody knows what his life was like when he was a kid. So uh, because he's half God and half human, uh, because of the Virgin Mary, whatever, we decided he'd have a human flaw. And this one's close to my heart. So he has a problem with his temper. <laughs> <laughs> and the deal is, if he doesn't learn to control his temper, then God's not going to let him take on the responsibility of becoming a God. We have a lot of fun in, in the cartoon version of Bethlehem. And uh, yeah, it's great. And the tension between God and, and Mary and, you know, <laughs> why don't you call me back? And Joseph being like really awkward and uncomfortable, like, hey, God, it's totally cool. I know she's still virgin. <laughs> like, we're still buddies. Like, so it's, uh, we, we had a, a blast making it and we've got some really amazing people attached to it. So I'm, I'm super excited about it. That sounds really funny. <laughs> uh, thanks. We'll keep an eye out on that. Oh, you were on Fox Laughs TV. I was on that. That was fun. 
Yeah, that was like my first uh, first TV credit. Actually, was on Laughs. I remember that. Yeah, me too. It was also my most recent. <laughs> oh, cool. Just it was my. Oh, only you're. One. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't know it was still. I, I, I'm like, oh wow, it's still on. That that's great. No, no. So, oh man, you've performed for the troops. Yeah, in Afghanistan. What is that like? Man, I see pictures and all that kind of stuff, but is it scary? I mean, is it like? Yeah. Very much so. It's There's definitely a moment where it goes from, okay, this is real. And for me, it was, we flew from LA to Turkey to Istanbul. And then in Istanbul, we flew into a town just out on the Afghani border. And oh man, it got real, real fast. It was very communist bloc, uh, very Eastern European. And then we got to Afghanistan. And what had happened in Afghanistan is that uh, a lot of Hummers had IEDs uh, going off. So they raised the Hummers be a little higher so there'd be less damage from improvised explosives. But when they did that, the Hummers would fall over. They'd roll over. So they created this rollover training. And so the day we got there, they put us in a, in a, in a machine that looked like a Hummer. And then they, they would spin us around in circles. So we learned how to take our seatbelts off when we were upside down. And then there's these series of tests you have to pass in order to be approved by the Department of Defense to go into a war zone. And the tests had live, real footage of terrorist acts, like really intense things. And they'd say things like, if a guy comes in with a bomb into the room, lay down and point your legs towards the terrorist. And then they'd explain that the reason why they tell you that is because they can replace your legs. And I was like, oh my God, this is very real. Like if a guy comes in with a rifle, uh, you squat, but you don't lay down because the bullets uh, skim the floor. So don't lay down, but squat. So it'll get your legs, but not your head, right? And not your torso. So that's the strategy behind a lot of the, the tools that they teach you is to use your, your own legs as a shield. And it was uh, when we got there, it, was, it got real, real fast. Like even I was on stage one time and we heard gunfire and uh, in the middle of my set, I stopped and then all the soldiers started laughing. And then this guy yelled out, oh, don't worry. It's like five clicks away. And I'm like, okay, great. And I'm like, but wait, what's a click? (laughs) And then they explained it was like a really far distance, but the noise carried in the valley. I mean, we were flying Black Hawk helicopters. It was it was very similar to the episode that Louis did on going to Afghanistan. It was like eerily similar, actually, but a great experience. I've never felt more, more proud. I haven't been like a big yay troops person before. Not for any reason. I just didn't have a lot of friends that were in the military. But then when I got there, I feel like I got a new understanding. I met a lot of people that were great people, people that I wouldn't normally be friends with. And then I became friends with people who normally wouldn't be friends with a guy like me. And I'm really proud of that. Like, I'm really proud that to this day, I still get emails from people I became friends with in Afghanistan almost six years ago. And I, I've been going back to military bases or war zones ever, ever since six years ago. It's almost every year for the last six years. That's incredible. Thank you for doing that. Thank all the comments. Because oh, I know how important it is to maintain the morale of the troops and all that kind of stuff. And they're so funny, by the way. The average person on a base is hilarious. Like the way it shows you how people how people use comedy and how important it is to, to get you through your day. I would imagine in that kind of scenario. It's funny yeah. what, how you describe they hear gunfire like you might hear thunder. Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's almost unnerving that they could like be that calm because of that. Oh, no, no, that's, yeah. uh, that storm is way out. <laughs> oh, man. There was a time where I was performing in, in an area of Afghanistan called Herat. 
And in Herat, there was a general sitting in the front row and he wouldn't, and the guy just had one of these faces that he wouldn't laugh. He would just like, he'd hear a joke and he'd just be like, and just nod his head, but he wouldn't laugh. And I, and I, I did what I do at comedy clubs or I'm like, I'm like, what is it general? Why aren't you laughing? And, and I knew that he was a general. So I thought it'd be fun for the troops to see me kind of picking on him. So I picked on him a bit and he just like, you know, he kind of smirked a little bit and I teased him a bit. But then after the show, he comes up to me. He's like, Hey, I, I want you, I apologize. I want you to know, I really enjoyed uh, your sketch, which, oh, they really got to me. He calls it a sketch. <laughs> Because I really enjoyed your sketch, you know, uh, very funny, very smart stuff. I really enjoyed that. Because I just want you to know, I, I, I am a happy person. It's just that, you know, the, the base uh, in Afghanistan and Herat is, has one of the best medical facilities because the hospitals outside of the base are not very good. So sometimes local Afghanis bring their children to the base. And before you guys got here, a little boy was bitten by a cobra. And so we had him in the hospital. And, you know, 15 minutes before you got here, he died. So I'm like, oh, my God. Thanks for making me feel like the biggest piece of shit. (laughs) You know, I'm giving him shit for not laughing. He's like, oh yeah, 20 minutes ago, a child died in my arms. And I'm Uh, like, wow. That's heartbreaking. Wow. It's heartbreaking. It's a and I met a kid in a PX, like a military store. This kid sounded like he was from Brooklyn, probably 10 years old. And I walked, he's like, Hey, what's up, my G? And I'm like, man, I looked at him kind of, he sounded like a kid in a bodega, you know? And I was just like, I, he, and he's like, I got Beats headphones. I got necklaces. I got this. I got DVDs. I got, and I'm like, wait. And I looked at him, I'm like, where are you from? He's, and he goes, I'm from Herat, dog. And I'm like, why do you sound like that? He goes, oh man, I've been working here since I was five. And I'm like, oh my God, this kid lives in Afghanistan, has never left Afghanistan, but because 90% of his day is surrounded by soldiers. He picked up, he sounds like a kid from Brooklyn. And it was, wow, it was a mind-blowing experience to like, this kid could not have been more authentically American. And sounds like a hell of an entrepreneur too. <laughs> he was. He was a hustler at 11 or 12 years old. He was a hustler. Probably making more money than all you guys. <laughs> I, spent, I spent all my money that day. I spent... <laughs> On, on a bunch of patches and the most fake Beats headphones you've ever seen in your <laughs> that Beats with two E's or whatever. Beats with two E's, exactly. It was, it was like, I was like, I was like wearing a, what do you call I was like a, like a root vegetable on my head. It was Beats. <laughs> but I was, it was the first time I was happy to get ripped off. I was, I was very uh, proud of the kid and, and happy to give him my money. That's so funny. Well, good for that kid. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so one other cool thing, well, lots of cool things, but one other of notes. Did you win the World Series of Comedy or is it the World Series of Comedy, Comedy Knockout on True TV? Are those one thing or two things? Those are two things. Okay, two. Okay, so all right, so you won the World Series of Comedy. Uh, Yeah, that was like my first big thing, my first big flag on the moon surface. It was, I just come back from Europe, actually. And I I like the World Series of Comedy because it's a year-long competition. And if you sign up, you can, you're not just competing in one competition. You have three satellite locations you can perform in. And then if you win one of them, you go to Vegas and compete for the final. I never went in to win. I just saw it as a a networking opportunity instead of, you know, hoping that a club owner would click on a YouTube video they'd see me live. And like we said in the beginning of the podcast, live is a completely different experience than a video. I knew that there was three clubs on those list of satellites that are clubs that I really wanted to perform at one day. And I wanted the bookers to see me. So I had no intention of trying to win. And I think that's what made me go in really relaxed. And they, they made a point at World Series of Comedy to say, you just need to do a 25 minute set 
And you could keep doing the same set because this is about the, the prize was winning a year of feature work. So it's just about having a really solid feature length set. You know, just do the same set, no problem. Strategically, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But for me, I was like, hey, I want to work with these clubs and I want a headline. So at the final, I was like, there's no way I'm going to beat these guys. These guys are, they're so good. And I'm just, so I'm just going to do a completely different 20 minute set. And that other 20 minute set did even better than the set I, I had been doing. And then, and that's how I ended up winning it, I think. That's awesome. That is so <laughs> oh, cool. Thanks. Yeah, sometimes if you just get out of your own head. hundred percent. I just, ha- I was having a great time. And honestly, I mean, the other guys, I, I still remember them. I think it was uh, Ebo Brewer was in second place and a guy named Alex, it's Alex Rodriguez from San Jose. And you know what it's like when you see other comics, like you hear your own jokes all the time, but when you see other comics, you're hearing their jokes for the first time. And I never wanted to stop being a comedy fan. So I never looked at anybody else's like, oh, oh, F them. My comedy is better than their comedy. I was genuinely blown away by them. I thought they were both really, really funny guys. So I just went in and said, just just have fun because there's no way you're going to (laughs) win. And here we are talking to the winner of the World Series of Comedy. (laughs) (laughs) You won Comedy Knockout on True TV. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, because I got to actually I was competing against one of my biggest comedy heroes a woman named Gina Yashere, who's got a TV show, a Chuck Lorre sitcom right now uh, called Bob Hart's Abishola. And I, I won. Actually, there's a really great picture that I use whenever I go back to the UK because she's a big star from the UK and everybody knows her. So it's a picture of me holding up the trophy from Comedy Knockout and she's in the background flipping me off. <laughs> <laughs> she got the last laugh though. There was a, yeah. a spot for a uh, Egyptian male your age. And she's like... <laughs> Like, well, I don't, I, I don't know if it was a Cassie <laughs> thing. She's, she's a, a, a lesbian Nigerian from England. So she ticks a lot of boxes too. <laughs> yeah, the, two of, you, the two of you in a room so together. Would be... <laughs> oh yeah, right? We're like, we, we tick boxes for six people. Oh, it's so funny. That is really cool. So you've done so much. I appreciate you spending all this time with me. It was great to oh, meet thanks you. Thanks for having me. It's been great to chat with great you. Great to get to know you. Yeah, you too. What's the best place for people to kind of keep up with you? on the socials. I think Instagram is sort of the epicenter of my social media. I do lots of, I'm doing uh, experimenting, especially now with COVID. I've been creating like short uh, YouTube videos and all sorts of other stuff. But Instagram is like where you can find everything. I usually post everything on Instagram and my handle there is Tamer Cat. So it's T-A-M-E-R, like Tamer. And then K-A-T, at Tamer Cat. Cool. I'll put it in the show notes. I'll put your website oh, and everything, cool. all that Perfect. kind of stuff in the show notes so people can just click, click, click and keep up with you. Yeah, that'd be great. You're also great on Twitter. So, Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, Twitter's, Twitter's really fun for me. I love it. It's such, a, it's such a playground for writers. So I have a lot of fun on Twitter too. Well, thank you so much. This thank was you great. so much for having me. You're, you're a great host and I, it was really nice to meet you and nice to speak to an American. <laughs> <laughs> My you pleasure guys. to represent America. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. How awesome was Tamar? I know, right? Check out his podcast. Go to his website, TamarKatan.com. You can get links to everything. Check out his YouTube channel. He's got lots of cool stuff with his wife there and his comedy. So much Tamar for you to take in. I'm excited for your journey. I'm excited for your Tamar journey. All right. Well, with the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at Hashtag Roundup. Download the free, always free Hashtag Roundup app 
at the Google Play Store or iTunes App Store. Follow us on Twitter at hashtag Roundup. Tweet along with us, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. All right, today's hashtag is hashtag if moms ran the world from Wild Bunch Tags, hosted by Mr. Ace Bannon, a amazing weekly game on hashtag Roundup. Hashtag if moms ran the world, of course, inspired by Tamara's mom, the real star of his podcast, <laughs> apparently. That's his words, not mine. Anyway, so we thought we'd use that as the inspiration. So here are some amazing hashtag if moms ran the world tweets. Tweet your own, tag us at Jeff Dwoskin Show on Twitter. We'll show you some Twitter love. But in the meantime, here's some to inspire you. Hashtag if moms ran the world. Home economics would be a prerequisite to graduate high school. That would be amazing, actually. Then I'd know how to cook and clean and close cupboards. Hashtag if moms ran the world, nothing would happen until everyone cleaned up their rooms first. Clean up that mess or we're not going anywhere. If moms ran the world, stay-at-home moms would get paid and they deserve it. Moms ran the world, there'd never would have been a disinfectant shortage. That's the truth. Moms ran the world. Full names would be used more. Jeffrey, turn down that podcast. If moms ran the world, wars would be fought via the silent treatment. That was me fighting a war, that moment of silence. If moms ran the world, Jif would be the only peanut butter. Because as we all know, only choosy mothers choose Jif. If moms ran the world, they'd always have your back. That's true. Mom's always there for you. And our final hashtag, if moms ran the world, tweet. If moms ran the world, there'd be a lot of politicians in the timeout chair. Oh, that's true. All right. Hashtag, if moms ran the world, tweet your own. All these will be retweeted at Jeff Dwoskin's show. Show them some Twitter love. And I'm sure they'll show you some love back. All right. Well, with the hashtag over and the interview over, that can only mean one thing. Oh my goodness, episode 160 has come to an end. I want to thank my special guest, Tamara Katan. I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me, and I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations.